I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, my name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Ezra 4. Middle school students, y'all can slip out with Jeremy and Emily if y'all would like to do that. A couple of um, announcements. If you're, uh, if you're watching online, uh, we have new cameras. I'm not sure where to look, so I'm just going to look up. Hopefully, I'm making eye contact with you. Uh, glad that you're tuning in with us. If you're not comfortable gathering yet corporately, I do want to encourage you to really think through a small group. Small groups are always important, particularly important uh, in this season of our kind of corporate life when uh, gathering together for worship is a, li- is a bit more difficult. So I really want to encourage you to do that. We mentioned that some last week. Matt mentioned small group Sunday. Next Sunday, we'll have uh, some of our small group leaders out on the deck uh, where you can meet them. And, and even if you're not comfortable coming uh, to, to worship, maybe you can show up at 10 o'clock and you can meet some of those small group leaders on the deck if, if you're comfortable doing that to get some more firsthand information about the groups. But again, reach out to Matt. Really important always to be in a small group, but particularly important now. I think we see the vulnerability of the larger congregation and how quickly something that's uh, done on a larger scale can, can kind of go away. And so how important those smaller uh, groups are. Second thing, um, I'm on the school governance team at Park Street Elementary. That's our partner in education. And I, we had a meeting on Thursday, and I was listening to the principal and some of the teachers talking, and I was kind of struck with their, their, it's difficult for them. And we all have opinions on whether schools should be open or not, kind of set that aside. Teachers are working, and they're working in difficult circumstances, as are many of you who are having to take care of kind of homeschooling your kids or schooling from home, whatever we're calling that. These days, and what I want us to do as a partner in education with Park Street is I would love for us once a month to express kind of thoughtfulness, gratitude, kindness to the teachers at Park Street. Uh, so, we're the church is going to do that in September. We'll come up with something that we can do. Um, and I would love for uh, maybe businesses, it may be a, they have about 100 teachers, so it's probably a little bit pricey for somebody to sponsor that on their own. But uh, maybe if, if, if you have a business and you're looking for a way to give, let do that. Consider taking on Park Street for uh, October or November, December, one of the months uh, in 2020 and 2021. If that's something that's interested, that interests you, just reach out to Kim, Kim at StonebridgeMarietta.org, and she'll coordinate everything. You can give to the church, and that way you can get the tax deal, and we'll handle all of the logistics, and we can even help you come up with some ideas. We're looking for people... Uh, to sponsor these kind of monthly appreciation things for the teachers at Park Street. Again, Stonebridge will do September, and I would love to cover all of the months. So y'all can uh, let us know if that's something that stirs your heart. All right, Ezra 4. Jews have been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Then the Persians overthrow the Babylonians. New king, his name is Cyrus. God stirs Cyrus's heart to give permission to any Jew who's been exiled. To go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. God stirs the heart of 42,000 plus Jews, more than that, but that's how many respond, uh, who go back. So now we've got 42,000 and change Jews back in the Jerusalem vicinity. They gather together after a couple of months on the site of Solomon's temple and they rebuild the altar. That's what we looked at last week. This altar is a significant um, structure, 15 feet high, 30 by 30 foot square. It's the place where you brought sacrifices and offerings. It's a place of worship for the people, the place where they 
uh, would meet with the Lord. So that's been rebuilt. And so then they start working on the temple. That's what they were moved to do. The reason they're there, that's their assignment, is to rebuild the temple. And so they start with the foundation. And as they're laying the foundation, that uh, provokes a reaction from the locals. So the locals, even though they're local, they're foreigners. They're transplants. They've been, they've been in the area for a hundred and almost 200 years. Some of you feel that way, like you've been here for a long time and you're still considered not local. That's where these guys are coming from. They've been in the land for almost 200 years, but they're foreigners. They were settled there by the Assyrians. In 722, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and they resettled got, uh, foreigners in Samaria, in this, where the, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel was. And those guys have lived there again for almost 200 years. And they worship God, but they also worship the gods from the countries that they came from. They're called syncretists. They worship God according to some of the practices or some of the, the, the tenets of the Old Testament. And they continue to worship their own gods as well. So there's some, there's some hostility and tension between them and the Jews. And those guys, that they react to the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, so that's how those locals are labeled, enemies of Judah, when they heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us. And building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as, uh, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. So these locals go to Zerubbabel. He's, like the, he's, he's the governor, not the king. The king is Persian. The governor of the, of the returnees. And Joshua, who's the high priest. They, these locals go to them, the two leaders, the, the civic leader and the religious leader, say, hey, we want to help. Seems like a nice offer. And what Zerubbabel and Joshua say is, no thanks. We don't want you to help. And then if you ever wonder uh, what Jesus means when he says, be shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove, this is, kind of, this is one of those responses. They say, well, actually, Cyrus, he only gave us permission. And if you remember what Cyrus said in chapter 1, he said, any of the people of God. So any Jew, y'all can rebuild the temple. And so what they're saying is, well, he only gave Jews permission to rebuild the temple, and y'all aren't Jews, so Sorry. You can't help, which technically is true. They weren't Jews, and so technically they didn't have permission, and they could say, you know, Cyrus may pull the plug on the whole thing if we let you guys help in the rebuilding. And so their, their, their offer for help, whether it was sincere or not, is shot down. And uh, that, that phrase, enemies of the returnees, enemies of Judah, that's a, that's a key understanding of who these locals are because we haven't seen anything except them asking to help. Your enemies don't normally ask to help you. And so what the writer of Ezra does now is he's going to step out of the flow of the chronology of rebuilding the temple. And he's going to say, the reason, I'm going to tell you why they're enemies. And he gives four examples of what these guys do that make them enemies of the returnees. It all happens in the future. Three of them happen in the future. So he's going to step back and he's going to say, Here, here's my evidence, here are my proofs for why I can call these guys enemies of the returnees and why it was smart for Zerubbabel and Joshua to reject their offer of help. So what we're going to read now, it's not, it's not chronologically, it's not in a chronological sequence. 
It happens most of it in the future, but the point is to say these guys really are enemies of the returnees. So starting in verse 4, then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So that's 16 years. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, so this is, they're jumping ahead. The temple's actually been rebuilt at this point. The locals lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, so another king, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to the king that was written in Aramaic uh, script and in the Aramaic language. Rehum, then here's another one. This is actually another letter starting in verse 8. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshay, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshay, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, judges, officials, and administrators over the people from Persia, Uruk, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Asher Bonapal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. Here's a copy of the letter. From your servants in the Trans-Euphrates. So that's where the Jews are now. The king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and they're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're restoring the walls and they're repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we're under obligation to the palace and it's not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you'll find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in Trans-Euphrates. And the king sent this reply to Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshay, the secretary, and to the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order, and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interest? As soon as a copy of the letter from the king was read to Rehum and Shimshay, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Now we skip, now we're going back. Verse 24 is actually a continuation of verse 3. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's kind of confusing. There will be a slide up on the screen to kind of show you the timeline tied to those different verses. So real, real time, we rebuild the altar, great. We start rebuilding the foundation. The locals come and ask to help. And we say, no, you can't be a part of this. And then the, the author who pulled together Ezra steps back and says, hey, I want all of you who are reading this to know they weren't wrong in rejecting this offer of help. These guys truly are, these locals truly are enemies of the returnees. And here's what they did. Immediately, 
they frustrated, they frightened, they intimidated the folks, the, the returnees. So there was nothing done on the temple for 16 years. The reason they went back was to rebuild the temple. They didn't do anything for 16 years. From Cyrus all the way to Darius, and there's a king in between those two. And then even after the temple was rebuilt, they continued to cause problems. Remember, in these days, a wall around a city is what provided protection. It's what made it secure. The walls of Jerusalem were destroyed by the Babylonians as well as the temple being destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple is rebuilt. Uh, We'll see that in Ezra 5 and 6. The walls are still in ruins, and so they start building the walls back so they can actually feel safe living in their city. But they cause, the locals cause problems. They write a letter to this king Xerxes at the beginning of his reign, maybe about 485, and we don't know what comes of that. Then they write another letter to Artaxerxes when he takes over. We don't know what comes of that. Then they write a third letter, and we actually have a copy of that. That's the one that we have. And they say, you can't trust these guys. You let them rebuild this city, and they're going to revolt against you. Go back and look in your records. That's who they are. That's what they do. And Artaxerxes looks and he says, yep, they have revolted. They have rebelled. Stop the building of the wall. And that actually provides the background for the book of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls. And then the author circles back to present day. Nothing was done on the building of the temple for 16 years. So there's a 16-year gap in the book of Ezra. There are multiple gaps. That's just the first one that we've seen where nothing is happening. So the, the returnees in the book of Ezra, they had a job. Rebuild the temple. Under the New Covenant, we have a a similar job. We're called the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Peter says that God is building a spiritual house and we're a part of that. Just like in the book of Ezra, the work is God's, it's his initiative. It was God's idea to rebuild the temple. He's the one that stirred Cyrus's heart. He stirred the heart of the returnees. He empowered them to do the work, but they actually had to cooperate. As we read Ezra 5 and 6, God didn't lay a brick, not one. He didn't put one rock in place. The returnees did that, absolutely led by God and empowered by God, but they had to do the work. And the same thing is true for us, this spiritual work of building this spiritual house, the church with a capital C, the work of evangelism, praying for people that don't know Jesus, inviting them into a relationship with Jesus, the work of discipleship, helping one another become more like Jesus and mature in our faith. That's that's our spiritual work. We're not literally laying bricks to build a temple. We're trying to mature people, one another, who are all, we're all bricks, according to 1 Peter, being built into this spiritual house. Nehemiah, the the returnees have an assignment, rebuild the walls. New covenant, we know God is establishing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, here in Marietta and around the world. And we have a part to play in that. At Stonebridge, we call that doing your deal. It's doing the good works that God's created in advance for you to do. And there's as many good works as there are people sitting in the room. And our responsibility, again, it's God's work, but he chooses to work through the church. Again, we, we'll, when we read Nehemiah, we'll see God doesn't lay one brick in a wall. The people do that. Stirred by God, provided by God, protected by God, empowered by God, absolutely, but they're the ones that actually lay the bricks. And the same thing is true for us. God's idea, his empowerment, his protection, his provision, but he works through us. We're instruments in God's hands for this spiritual work of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls. That's spiritual for us. It's not physical. Physical outworking for sure, but it's a spiritual work. And God uses us to do that. We're tools in his hands, just like the returnees were the same. They were tools in God's hands, instruments in his hands to accomplish his purposes. They experienced opposition, and so do we. Their opposition had a face. It was these locals 
who were causing problems, and you saw their names in there. I'm not going to try to pronounce them again. You saw the names of the guys. They're the ones who are stirring up trouble for them. They're, they're, ta- they're tattletaling, telling the king, hey, this is what these guys are doing. You've got to put a stop to this. They're going to stop paying you taxes. They're going to rebel. You're going to lose everything you've got in this region of the world. We have an enemy. And sometimes we can put a face on our enemy as well. But we know, Ephesians 6, our enemy is really not the people that we're seeing. Our enemy's the devil. It's, we don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against powers and principalities and forces in the, of darkness. It's the devil. He's our enemy. He's their enemy too. They can just see these people who are causing them problems. And sometimes we can, again, put a face to folks who are causing us problems or frustrating what we're trying to do. But remember, our enemy ultimately is the devil. And the same tactics he used in Ezra 4, he uses today. He's, got, he's just got one playbook. And he's been running the plays since Genesis 2, since the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. He's been running the same plays. And there's no reason for him to come up with new ones because they work. And we see him running those plays in Ezra. We see him doing the same thing during the ministry of Jesus when he pulls him aside, when Jesus is in the desert. And we see it in our own life. Look at the words that are used in Ezra 4. Discouraged. It discouraged them from building. Frustrated. They frustrated their plans. Frightened them from building. Made uh, accusations, false accusations against the people. And then ultimately compelled them to stop building. And so we want to look at those weapons. These are the tools that the enemy uses to try to shut you and me and us collectively down. We have an assignment. We have work to do. There's a temple to be rebuilt. Again, it's not a physical temple. It's the church, the people of God. And we each have a part to play in building up one another. That's Ephesians 4. We each have a part to play in sharing Jesus with people that don't know him. That's the Great Commission. God, again, is establishing his kingdom. There are walls that we're rebuilding. Isaiah 58 says that we're going to be rebuilders of ancient walls and restorers of ancient streets with dwellings. Again, that's a spiritual work, but we talk about the walls of the city, the government and the schools and the family and the church with a capital C and the business community and the medical community and the creative uh, cultural community, all of these different Areas where God is working in our city. And we have a responsibility in each one of those areas to see his kingdom come and his will to be done. We have assignments. And just like the enemy was trying to keep this physical temple from being rebuilt and these physical walls from being rebuilt, he wants to keep us from engaging in the work of building this spiritual temple and building these spiritual walls. We've read Revelation. We know ultimately God wins. But we've also read Revelation, and we know that the beast has enormous influence and enormous power. And God's people get kicked around, and they get persecuted, and they get oppressed, and some of them get killed. Even though the outcome is assured, the battle is still real. We have an opponent, and he's really crafty, and he's ruthless. And we want to know how he works against us so that we can fight. So that we can recognize his attacks. We've said before, like, the devil is not pitchfork and pointy tail. You would recognize that. He masquerades as an angel of light. His attacks on us are usually subtle. Almost always, they're subtle. 
And we want to be aware of those. So uh, discouragement, the, la- the, the loss of confidence or enthusiasm. That's a big one. We get discouraged and it makes us quit. Whatever the assignment is, we throw in the towel. We tend to get discouraged if we're not getting the results that we want in the time frame that we anticipate. That discourages us. I've worked really hard and I'm not getting anything out of it. It's taken too long. Another huge source of discouragement is when other people complain. When people complain and we feel like, man, I'm working as hard as I can. I'm doing the best that I can. And, and all you're doing is griping. It sucks the life out of us. It can cause us to throw in the towel. Frustration, I see, is the other side of the coin with discouragement. Uh, frustration is it's a state of being upset or being annoyed, uh, usually because we can't make something happen or we can't change something. We can't achieve a goal or we can't change something. And, and again, if, if being discouraged is a balloon that's deflating, being frustrated is a balloon that's about to explode. If being discouraged is quitting, kind of limping away with your head hanging, frustration is stomping away with steam coming out of your ears. The end result's the same. You quit. Your emotions are different. But again, I see they're not the same, discouragement and frustration. I see them as two sides of the same coin. I, I do wonder if people are more prone to one or the other. I don't know if that's true. I think about myself. I'm much more likely to be frustrated than discouraged. I don't know if that's true. Uh, for you, if there's one of those that you tend to maybe uh, wrestle with more than the other, it's helpful to know that. Fear, one of the greatest weapons in the enemy's arsenal. Frightened, he, they frightened the returnees, so they, were, they, they didn't want to work anymore. They didn't know what would happen. Fear is almost always future directed. By definition, the future is unknown, and the enemy takes advantage of that quality of the future, the fact that we can't know it. And he sows all kinds of fears in us. And, it, and that's all just, that's kind of whatever your flavor is. Some people are afraid of getting sick, and some people are afraid of dying, and some people are afraid of being alone, and some people are afraid of being poor, and some people are afraid of their kids not turning out okay, and some people are afraid of being a disappointment or a failure. There's, there's however many, there's as many fears as there are people. And ultimately, the specific fear doesn't matter. It's almost always rooted in the, in the unknown. I don't know what's going to happen. And so in that space, that element of the future, which, by, again, by definition, it's unknown because it hasn't been lived yet, he can sow all kinds of fears into our minds. False accusations. It's a big one. So in Ezra, the locals, they accused the returnees to the king. So they're writing back to the king, and they're saying, here's, what these guys, here's who these guys are, and here's what they're doing. The way the enemy... Uh, accuses us now is he usually he's, he accuses us to ourselves and he accuses God to us. So at times we are both the uh, the one accused and the one the accusation is brought to. At times God is the one who's accused and we're the one the accusation is brought to. And the thing about uh, the enemy again he he's really good at what he does. The accusations almost always have an element of truth. So the Jews had rebelled. That's a true statement. They rebelled in 597, and they rebelled in 587. They rebelled against the Babylonian um, king. They were, being, uh, they, had, they were kind of under Babylonian authority at that point, and they rebelled, and that's why ultimately they were crushed and everything got destroyed. That's a true statement. They did rebel. Now, the other things are ridiculous. 
you have a small number of people, uh, a minority, to think that they are somehow going to lead this entire region astray is absurd. That they could somehow lead a revolt as few as they were in numbers. It doesn't, it, it never would have happened, but it doesn't matter. There's, again, there's this kind of kernel of truth in the accusation, and then you build all of this exaggeration and hyperbole around it. You get the king scared, and he says, we're shutting it down. We're shutting it down. They've, re- they've rebelled twice. Who's to say they won't do it again? And the enemy does, it's the same kinds of accusations that he levels uh, to it, that he brings to us. You can't trust God. He didn't answer your prayer that time. You may be thinking, you know what? He didn't. That didn't work out the way I wanted it to. That's true. Then all these things kind of get added around it. Or maybe it's about yourself. You know, you, you really, you're not really cut out for this work. You really struggle with these areas of sin in your life, which is true. And so that disqualifies you from God using you at all, which is not true. Something that's true And then he kind of builds from there, packages these lies around it. But but that kernel of truth really kind of hooks us. And we believe these accusations that aren't true. Compelled them to stop working. I don't think that's uh, something that we're going to wrestle with. We live in a society where there's a large amount of religious freedom. So I don't necessarily see us ever being forced to have to stop this spiritual work, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, whatever that kind of looks like. I know some people see the restrictions because of public health and saying, hey, the government's overreaching and they're starting to do that. They're controlling gatherings and it's just it's a slippery slope and they've kind of got their whatever, the camel's got his nose in the tent. I, I don't necessarily see that. I could, I could be wrong for sure, uh, but I, I don't see that at this point. So we're not going to spend any time on compelled them to stop. Those first four are the ones that I feel like are the enemy's primary weapons against us where we live. Discouragement, frustration, fear, and accusations. I'm wondering which of those, if you had to pick one, would you say, that's the one for me. If he's going to take me down, that's what he's going to use. Remember, the the goal is, is the same. He's just trying to get you to quit. The job is to rebuild the temple. I don't care why you don't rebuild it. I just don't want you to do it. Disobedience is disobedience regardless of the motivation. So I just need you to quit. I just need you to quit working. So he throws everything at him. Discouragement, frustration, fear, and accusations. What does he use against you to get you to lay down your tools, to get you to defer to walk away from what God would have you do? Which one of those four? We don't have tons of time left, so you just hit this really quick. What does it look like to fight against him? Love and trust, we can say they, they apply across the board. The deeper our love for, the, actually it's not even the deeper our love for God, it's the greater our understanding of God's love for us, as well as a deepening trust in him. Th- those things make us immune to these weapons of the enemy. The greater our level of trust, the greater our conviction of God's love for us, the less likely we are to be shut down by discouragement or frustration, by fear or by accusation. But, but maybe some specifics that would help you. If you've identified the, which one of the four you're the most prone to getting defeated by, focus on this counter-virtue. So if, if, dis, if discouragement, if that's you, 
If you're someone who, like, you can be an Eeyore at times. It's easy for you to throw in the towel, I'm never going to do it, I'm a failure, kind of run down the line. Hope. Hope is a confident expectation of a better future. Cultivate hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation that's rooted in the character of God. I know the future is going to be better because God is always at work. He's working all this stuff out together for my good and for his glory. I've read Revelation. I know it's going to end better than it is now. And that gives me hope. Cultivate hope. If your thing is frustration, so that would be me. This would be one for me. Patience. The old word for patience, long-suffering. It's a brutal word. It means exactly what it sounds like it means. It means you bear with people and yourself for a long period of time in difficulties. Cultivate patience. If you're someone who's given to frustration, you're either frustrated with others because they're not doing what you think they should do, or you get frustrated with yourself when you're not performing or acting the way you, you know you should. Patience. Suffer long with yourself and particularly with others. If your issue is fear, and that's for many of us, courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is being afraid and moving forward anyway. It's just saying fear is not going to be the boss of me. That's all it is. It doesn't mean that you're not, your knees aren't knocking. It just means that's not going to keep you from stepping forward in obedience. Cultivate courage. And if false accusations, if you tend to get kind of waylaid when the enemy accuses you about you or accuses God to you, the truth, think about Jesus in the desert. He countered every one of the enemy's accusations with Scripture. All of these are things you want to cultivate in the Spirit, not in your flesh. So it's not about you being courageous or you being patient or uh, you just memorizing all of the command or all the promises in the Bible. It's not that. It's asking the Holy Spirit. I, I tend to be discouraged and I need you to stir hope within me. I tend to get frustrated, and I need you. One of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. I need that. Would you cultivate that within me? That's a tough prayer to pray. I tend to get sidetracked by wild fantasies that kind of run through in my mind. I'm so prone to fear. I need you to give me courage in the moment to move forward in obedience. Let's take a minute and pray. It's 10 o'clock. Bo, you can come back. We're going to take five minutes. We'll be, we'll be done at 10.05. 10.07. We'll take seven minutes. I want you to think through those four weapons that have been formed against you. The Bible says no weapons formed against us will prosper, but if we look at our own life, we think, man, they seem to be doing pretty good. Discouragement, frustration, fear, accusations. Which is the one? What's the enemy's primary weapon against you? Be as specific as you can. If it's fear, I would say then what? Fear of what? Try to be as specific as you can. Name it. Loses a lot of power. 
If it's discouragement, what are the circumstances that tend to make you discouraged? For some of you, it's one person. If one person, there's one person in particular, and if that person complains, you're done. Name it as specifically as you can. Then say to the Lord, this is, I'm losing in this area. This is a place where the, the weapon of the enemy seems to be prospering. It seems to be doing some damage to me. And I'm tired of it. And I recognize in my own strength and my own flesh, I'm never going to defeat him. And I'm asking now in the name of Jesus for you to fill me again with your Holy Spirit and for you to cultivate and then name that virtue, this within me. Not just as I sit here or sit in my den watching this on a Sunday morning. Cultivate this within me in the moment when I most need it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do that, that you would strengthen each one of us. That first word, discouraged, it it means literally to make their hands weak. If you're building a wall, having a weak hand is about the worst thing that can happen to you. And God, we confess we get weak-hearted all the time. We don't want to, but we do. So would you come and strengthen the hearts of your children, children and students and adults, people who've walked with you for weeks and people who've walked with you for decades, Would you strengthen our hearts? Would you give us eyes to see the way the enemy wants to steal and kill and destroy, the way he wants to shut down the good work that you want to do in us and the good work that you want to do through us? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have ministry up here. We've got these little blue tape things. You can come and kneel, and if you kneel, then that means you're Uh, You want someone to pray for you, and Kim or I will come and put a hand on your back. We'll wear a mask. Uh, We won't talk to you, but we will pray for God to cultivate these virtues. Uh, Or you can just stay in your seat, and you can pray as Bo sings over us, and he will dismiss us in uh, three or four minutes. Good?